0: Hello, TV Room listeners, and welcome to the first of our monthly briefings. If you subscribe to the show, then you already heard last month's status update, where the TV Room's new format was quickly introduced and explained. To quickly resummarize, the show's going to have the same content, but the distribution is going to be a little different. As we transition from putting out one episode per month, or two, or three to putting out seasons of episodes about one particular subject or theme in a more timely manner. It makes sense for a lot of reasons, and hopefully you'll be able to notice and appreciate the difference. The season currently in production is all about the strange but true saga of Patricia Campbellhurst and the short-lived Symbionese Liberation Army. Mom, Dad? During the course of taping, some indispensable new research material appeared on my desk, and it was too good not to take advantage of. So, the decision was made to roll back the drop date by a few weeks, as this new material was incorporated into the episodes already in production. We're tentatively looking at July 1st, the fiscal new year, as D-Day for the new season premiere. And if, by some act of God or other, the launch date changes... An update will be provided in another one of these briefings. Thank you. In the meantime, as we close out May of 2018, let's take a moment to acknowledge the fact that we lost a couple of renowned men of letters this month, Messrs. Tom Wolfe and Philip Roth. First, Tom Wolfe. The byline on the Sorif TV website is something like, blogging from the 60s and 70s and beyond... Tom Wolfe was a guy who was actually, quote unquote, blogging from the 60s and 70s and beyond. His blog posts just happened to come in the form of newspaper and magazine articles in the nation's leading publications. As a college undergrad, Tom Wolfe was a good enough baseball pitcher to earn a tryout with a major league club. But when that didn't pan out, he went to Yale and got a PhD instead. He worked first as a local reporter before establishing himself as a feature writer. Another guy who was blogging from the 60s and 70s and definitely from beyond was Hunter S. Thompson. Wolfe and Thompson were contemporaries in a lot of ways. Each had a background in sports. Each broke into writing as a newspaper reporter. Each engaged in the experimental styles that would later be called the new journalism, a phrase coined by Tom Wolfe himself. Wolf and Thompson each published their first books at about the same time, on very similar subjects. In Thompson's case, it was an account of his time riding with the Oakland chapter of the Hell's Angels. In Wolf's case, it was a write-up of his time spent riding the further bus with Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters. Thompson and Wolf came up in a time when Hemingway's clipped prose was still the standard for writers whether they be correspondents or novelists. And they seemed to model themselves after his public persona as well, to an extent. Men were still expected to engage in manly pursuits, even writers. Thompson and Wolfe were both tall and athletically inclined. Wolfe dabbled with a career in baseball, and Thompson fanatically followed football and developed a love of motorcycles and firearms. They both went on to make names for themselves as new journalists, but with vastly different styles. You could almost picture Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson as the good cop and bad cop, or the Abbot and Costello of the literary scene. Wolfe was the straight man, Thompson was the wild man. They were the two faces of the theater mask, one taciturn, one manic. Tom Wolfe represented the Ivy League, Hunter S. Thompson represented the spirit of San Francisco. Tom Wolfe, easternmost in quality. Hunter S. Thompson, westernmost in flavor. The new journalists grew up with the old rules before going on to break them. Wolfe broke the rules by rioting with the keys on his typewriter. He customized punctuation and spelling, He made liberal use of the symbol keys on the top row of the typewriter that most writers simply ignored altogether. He generated screaming headlines. He experimented with format. He even attributed his sources in novel ways. As a sample of Wolf's style, his first breakthrough article, published in 1963 about the Southern California custom car community, was called, There Goes Vroom Vroom That Candy Colored Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby. Contained in that title is one set of parentheses, two exclamation points, two dashes, and two deliberately misspelled words. That article traditionally marks the onset of the New Journalism movement, a genre coined by Wolfe to include Truman Capote, Norman Mailer, Joan Didion, Gay Talese, in addition to himself, Hunter S. Thompson, and a few others. Whether the new journalists were actually doing anything new is subject to debate. Instead, their novelty seems to be that they wrote less as journalists, and more as sociologists and psychoanalysts of what turned out to be very interesting times. Among these notables, Hunter S. Thompson probably has the most celebrity cachet at the moment. But many of the new journalists did try to insert themselves into the popular culture one way or another, Mailer went on the talk shows and made sure that his personal life made the headlines. Capote turned himself into a character, some might say a caricature, and made himself widely available for cameos in high and low places, in front of any camera that would have him. Thompson succeeded on another level though, even when his actual writing stopped being as impactful. Alone among his peers, Thompson was successful at writing himself into the plot as an actual protagonist of the counterculture, becoming a very unreliable narrator and blaming it on the acid. He had two feature films made about him and his exploits while he was alive, and it's an image that only seems to grow stronger with time now that he's passed. Tom Wolfe hopped aboard the electric acid further bus, but he didn't drink the Kool-Aid. He remained the invisible narrator, the undertaker in the white seersucker suit, or something to that effect, quietly taking notes at the back of the bus, while the extroverts took the acid and performed. Wolf's sober take on riding around with Ken Kesey's Merry Pranksters was given the screaming title, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Hunter S. Thompson's wild, ether-tinged road trip to Vegas has the more prosaic title, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Wolf was a lifelong conservative who grew steadily more conservative when confronted with an increasingly trenchant and ascendant liberal media culture during the late 1960s and 70s. One of his best-known pieces is called Radical Chic, The Party at Lenny's, which describes the evening he spent as a guest at a formal party hosted by Mr. and Mrs. Leonard Bernstein to raise funds for the Black Panthers. To Wolf. The whole thing seemed absurd. Wealthy patrician socialites, who lived completely closed off from ordinary people, hosting black gown galas for and trying to relate to would be revolutionaries. It's where the term radical chic comes from, obviously. It's also where the term limousine liberal was coined. You can certainly argue that it's unfair to simply dismiss Bernstein and his crew as a bunch of clueless liberals. But what does seem to be clueless? is inviting Tom Wolfe to the Black Panther Party and expecting a sympathetic write-up just because he happens to be a trendy New York writer. To this day, people still treat the publication of this article as if it were a watershed political event in itself. You can probably take classes on it at college. Hunter S. Thompson was the bombardier of the new journalists. But Wolfe was the gatekeeper. By the late 70s, Thompson's best stuff was behind him, but Wolfe was just getting started. After being exclusively a magazine writer for the first 25 years of his career, his first full-length book was the nonfiction The Right Stuff, which earned him the National Book Award and propelled the story of the first astronauts and of test pilots like Chuck Yeager into the national limelight, along with a film of the same name that quickly followed. Wolfe's next book was also his first novel, Bonfire of the Vanities. It probably had an even bigger impact on the national conversation than The Right Stuff did. People say that the novel has lost its place at the forefront of American cultural expression in recent decades. Bonfire of the Vanities may well be the last novel that everyone had to read, quote-unquote. It didn't just start a conversation. It was a conversation about life in the big American city and about life in the greed-fueled 1980s. Wolfe died in his longtime home of Manhattan at the age of 88. And just days later, we lost Philip Roth whom a lot of people describe as the best American novelist of the late 20th century. I guess John Updike would be the other main contender for that title. Roth and Updike were even closer contemporaries than Wolfe and Hunter S. Thompson were. Their first books, Goodbye Columbus and Rabbit Run, were published within a year of each other, in 1959 and 60, respectively, and were both received with considerable accolades. Roth won the National Book Award for Fiction for the collection of stories in Goodbye, Columbus. Rabbit Run established Updike as one of the major novelists of his generation and spawned a series of four Rabbit novels, all of which were well-received, and the last two of which went on to win Pulitzers. Philip Roth's most celebrated and most notorious book was 1969's Portnoy's Complaint, which scandalized himself, his family, families in general, and perhaps the entirety of American Jewry. The meteoric success and controversy of this book may have set the course for the remainder of Roth's career, and not in a good way. Portnoy's complaint is written as a monologue narrated by the protagonist, Alexander Portnoy, to his psychoanalyst, as if it's one long therapy session on the doctor's couch. The book's frankness and candor shocked the world. Roth continued to write in the first person, and ended up publishing about 30 novels in total, almost exclusively, if not exclusively, in the guise of one of his four alter egos. Whereas Updike felt free to experiment with all sorts of themes and voices in his fiction, Roth pretty much cycled through the same sets of inner dialogue and childhood memories to write his. There are those who say Roth did this as an act of atonement, for the things he wrote about his parents and others in Portnoy's Complaint, for which he received so much condemnation and censure, along with the critical praise and celebrity status. If that is true, then Roth, who pretty much always lived alone, never started a family, and didn't seem to believe in any kind of God or higher purpose, can be seen largely as a tragic figure. This has been the TV Room Monthly Update for May 2018. Frankly, I'm disappointed in the way you will have treated Ruben. Ruben has feelings too.